Hello, hello, hello. I'm Aaliyah, and you're listening to Netflix Coffee and Questioning Humanity. In today's episode, we are doing something a little different, but I was so inspired by a docuseries that I found on Shudder. If you don't know, Shudder is a solely horror streaming service that you do get when you purchase AMC Plus, and it's glorious for the most part. As far as Shudder goes, you can find some of the best and worst films in horror and in shows. You know, some of that horror stuff that is so bad, it's actually amazing. Shudder helps you uncover those golden nuggets. One of those nuggets I found, not a bad nugget, an absolutely fascinating nugget was the docu-series Cursed Films. After watching the five-part series, I went on a mission to find some more Cursed Films because they kind of stuck in the horror genre. And I have found a lot. I'm going to be breaking down some of the craziest stories I have found and incorporating the stories featured in the series as well. Well, some of them, not all of them. I want to give you the chance to be baffled when you watch the series, if you choose to do so. I am also having the most glorious, autumnal, badass, coffee, boozy drink that I made. And it is unreal. I even have a really sick name for it too. And I'm already tipsy. So we're going to get into it before I can't see straight. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast where I am going to talk about explicit things, hard things, really scary things, really adult things. I'm also going to be drinking alcohol like an adult person, and I'm going to swear a lot. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now on with the show. I don't even know where to begin. Okay, let me start here where this germ of an idea happened. Also, I may not be as articulate as usual. I know I'm not a super articulate person to begin with. My apologies. This is a fun episode, so I'm going to be a little loosey-goosey. I mean, I'm always loosey-goosey, but like this is extra loosey-goosey. Let me start here. I was grocery shopping and I was picking up eggnog. Yeah, I drink fucking eggnog in October. I'm a Christmas gal. I like horror and shit, but it's not my whole personality. Horror and Halloween, yeah, commercially they go together, but also Christmas and horror is okay too. I watch horror movies all year round, not just Halloween. Anyway, I like Christmas and I like horror and I tolerate Halloween. It's a chance to make themed food and decorate cute, so I don't mind it. But any whoosies, I was grocery shopping and I was reaching for eggnog. And if you are in New England, the only eggnog you should be drinking, the only eggnog you should be purchasing is hood, period. So I'm reaching for the classic regular eggnog, right? No, sold out. So fuck you if you make fun of me for drinking eggnog in October. It's there. People buy it. People love Christmas. So they were sold out of the classic, but they had pumpkin and vanilla flavor. I'm a classic gal. I wasn't trying to switch it up and get fucking crazy, but I got the pumpkin flavor and I got to tell you, it's pretty fucking good. That same day, which was yesterday, I was working on my notes for this episode and I was like, let me do like a special coffee themed cocktail for a little special bonus episode. But me, I don't really drink a lot, so I don't know like how to concoct a cocktail. So I just kind of look for base recipes on Pinterest and then just kind of go buck wild from there. And drunk podcasting seemed like a really good idea (laughs) until I was like one drink deep. And I was like, oh, man, I'm already annoying. I'm a thick girl, but I cannot handle my liquor. I don't know how to act. I'm more of an herbalist. So anyway, I'm thinking of this cocktail situation to make. And I decided like Bailey's is probably the easiest and the best thing to go with coffee. Duh. And I found this recipe on Pinterest. Like I said, I use that as a base, but I saw frozen coffee ice cubes and I was like, fuck yeah. 
the recipe, I don't fully remember it. It called to take the coffee cubes in a glass and pour an ounce of Bailey's, an ounce of vanilla vodka. And then it said to add six ounces of half and half. And I was like, fuck that. We are going to do all the eggnog and we're going to feel really sick because we're lactose intolerant. So it's just like a whole mess happening in my belly right now, but it's fucking worth it. And if you want to be fancy, you can like top it off with whipped cream and like a sprinkle of cinnamon and get all cute. But it's fucking delicious. Like the ice cubes melt and infuse it further. And the name. I'm so proud of this name. I worked hard on it. Probably spent like 15 minutes thinking of the perfect name. So please validate me on the name. Thank you. It's called Cafe Grognog. How fucking amazing. How, how honestly. In another life, I was a bartender. How amazing. It's delicious. A great name. I should probably copyright it. But yeah, I'm going to be a little tipsy. I apologize. I do get annoying when I'm tipsy. If that's not your jam, that's okay. I got plenty of other episodes for you to listen to. Should have another one coming shortly as well. So you can, you know, tap out of this one. But I like to think I'm a little bit fun. Bless it be. Let's talk some cursed movies. Some of the films are horror. Some aren't, like I mentioned. And some have really heavy, intense deathly alleged curses and some have creepy instances some have both and these movies I curated span over decades what I liked about the docuseries was that they gave the information acknowledged these things as creepy and tragic but also gave their skeptical opinions as well I'm not gonna throw all of my two cents out there I might chime in a little bit depending on you know how hard this hits. Overall, I'm pretty skeptical, but it's highly amusing. Well, amusing isn't the right word because there's a lot of tragic shit that happened on these sets. Interesting, fascinating. Those are the words I'm looking for. I mean that in the least offensive way possible, but I think enough people are into the occult and fascinated by these strange happenings to the point where they're making documentaries and there's endless articles about them online that, you know, we can all understand what I'm saying. So I don't believe in curses really, but if I'm being honest, I do believe in the paranormal. And I do think ghosts or poltergeists or whatever are definitely lingering around some sets and scripts. And they were probably pretty pissed off about their representation. I don't know about curses. I think a lot can be explained away, but I certainly believe in like dark energy. And that being said, I wanted to start with a recent movie or a recent series rather, The Conjuring. Taken from the real case files of legendary paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, 2013's The Conjuring, the first film of the entire series, sees the Perrin family's quiet home life disturbed by malevolent spirits who take pleasure in taunting their young children. Lead actor Patrick Wilson, who portrays real-life demon hunter Ed Warren, recounted how Joey King, who was a child at the time and she played Christine, got mysteriously injured on set. She ended up covered in strange bruises all over her body after just a few weeks of shooting. She wasn't doing any stunts. That's not something kid actors do. There was absolutely no logical reason for this girl to be covered in bruises, yet here she was. And they seemingly just showed up. The bruises did eventually go away, but it freaked Patrick Wilson out to the point where he wouldn't even speak on it in interviews, even though that would be like great press. Patrick Wilson, over the course of the interview that he did many years later, obviously he's speaking about it in an interview now. He just didn't want to like push the movie off of this information. I, I get what he's saying, but he said in the interview that he did a while later that his own home is haunted. And he said, quote, I've heard people on two different occasions say they've heard kids laughter in the middle of the night in my house. And that used to freak my wife out, unquote. James Wan, the creator of the series and a fucking genius, by the way, truly an absolute legend. He wrote Malignant, which I watched recently, and I'm going to be talking about that in the next episode. But he is the mastermind behind The Conjuring, 
Aquaman saw. But anywho, I'm getting too far into James Wan. But he said that if there was something dark and creepy going on, he probably would be too busy directing to even notice a spirit standing next to him. So he wasn't too sold on the whole situation. However, Patrick Wilson, who was now fully invested in the hauntings that were happening, showed him a video while on set of The Conjuring 2. A curtain supposedly was moving by itself at the end of the sound stage, and these were like huge curtain drapes. They started swaying on their own. They just kept moving. None of the doors were opened and the air conditioning was turned off. They just moved on their own. It's something small, the curtain situation and the bruises. But still, if you were in that situation, you'd probably be a little freaked out too. The lead actress, Vera Farmiga, also experienced some strange happenings over the course of filming. In an interview with Collider, James Wan discussed how the actress confided in him that she had been waking up between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. every morning from the moment they started work on The Conjuring. This time of day or night, whatever you want to call it, is commonly known as the demonic hour and has been a significant focal point of a lot of horror movies, including The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Even fucking weirder, The Conjuring itself features a witch who died during that specific time frame, something Farmiga brought up to Juan when she was confiding in him. And the actress apparently had a lot of trouble sleeping afterwards as well. As if that wasn't enough for her, because I mean, that's kind of a small thing, but a freaky thing, of course. Farmiga also shared a creepy discovery of digital claw marks on her computer screen. The weird part is the marks appeared after she had finished speaking to director James Wan about the role of Lorraine Warren and about her desire to have Patrick Wilson acting opposite her. She was quoted as saying this, I don't know how to explain it. I do know I hadn't dropped my computer. My children didn't step on it, so I closed it put it away, and my brain went berserk. Vera later said she woke up with three claw mark bruises across her thigh. So claw marks on her screen and claw marks on her body. I'd probably be signing off of that movie at that point. No, thank you. A lot of people thought she was under paranormal attack, but she said they didn't hurt at all. So I guess that means that it's not paranormal when they don't hurt. I don't know fully, but that's what she said. She made it seem like they were essentially little bruises made by someone with long fingernails and that freaked her out, understandably so. This actually kind of happened to me and I 100% believe there was some sort of demon chilling around me like seven or eight years ago. I would go to sleep. Mind you, I had no cats at the time and I would wake up with crazy cat scratches or they looked like cat scratches all over my right arm. Tons of them. It wasn't from myself and I don't and didn't have long nails and the scratches consistently got worse and I was terrified. I eventually moved out of the apartment I was living in. I can't quite remember what had happened, but it stopped. I still have a picture of it somewhere. It's like in the inner belly of my laptop. Screenwriters Carrie and Chad Hayes recounted in a chat with Collider that Carrie's wife had experienced something weird while she was on set too, with Carrie noting that, quote, when things happen, it's usually to a wife or a woman at home whose husband is gone. She experiences more, unquote. In this particular case, she noticed a weird water formation that appeared on the floor out of nowhere. Considering it was cement on an open floor plan, the spill was blamed on the family dog. Like that's the first thing you'd think of is, oh, they peed. But the spill started showing up again and again in the exact same spot after being thoroughly cleaned up. After going to Lorraine Warren herself for professional advice, Carrie deduced it was a water poltergeist feeding off teenage angst from one of his kids. Hayes and his wife confirmed that he was going through a pretty turbulent time. 
I didn't know water poltergeists existed, but there you go. When I hear that, I think of like an evil giant seahorse. When the real-life Perrin family came to visit the set of The Conjuring, they were already on edge at how realistic everything was. I'm sure that must have been so creepy and so hard for them. Cindy, who is the second eldest, who is now a grown woman, but she was a child at the time of the haunting, physically had to move herself away after coming face to face with the witch. Chris Hayes also shared that one of the other parent children told him straight up, quote, something really bad is going to happen out here today, unquote. That day, their mother Carolyn subsequently fell and broke her hip. She was the only one who didn't make it to the set. If you're familiar with The Conjuring, you know all about the Warrens' infamous artifact room that they actually turned into a museum. The room, if you aren't familiar, is filled with an extensive collection of paranormal objects that they have collected throughout their years of investigations. I really wanted to go because it's not super far from me, but it's closed at the moment due to zoning issues. I don't know what zoning issues mean, but I can imagine that in a little rinky-dink house in the middle of a rinky-dink town in Connecticut, people get a little crazy. Maybe that's what zoning has to do with, but who knows? Either way, I can't go. To name a few items in the closed museum, obviously Annabelle. We all know Annabelle is the star of that situation. There's also the Perrin family music box, the haunted piano, a demonic toy monkey, and a shadow doll that wasn't featured in any of the movies, but is said to visit people in their dreams. And supposedly, the spirit has the power to stop hearts. If you believe in the occult and the paranormal, this room would be the equivalent to the sun as far as power sources. Obviously, they had to recreate this room to film the movies, and apparently a wooden peg from the recreation would constantly move around. One minute it would be in one place, then disappear to somewhere else. Something small, but something to note. Something little and creepy and kind of funny. For The Conjuring 2, they had the set blessed by a priest prior to shooting. One of the Warner Brothers security guards was like, no, 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 this place is seriously haunted. He also doubles as a real-life ghost hunter, so take that into consideration. But he said the priest didn't stop the drilling and hammering underneath the stage when no one was working. It was also revealed during the shock set report that Lee Winnell, Juan's longtime friend and filmmaking buddy, had a strange incident while visiting the set himself. According to reports, a load of insidious photos, which Winnell had shot during his production on the movie, mysteriously showed up on his iPad while he was visiting Juan. Normally that doesn't sound weird, but he didn't have anything saved on his PC or his iPad. Like he didn't take any of these photos. He didn't receive them, nothing. And he couldn't get rid of the pictures either. I couldn't find any details on that. Like did the phone freeze when he tried to delete them? If he tried to delete them, would it glitch and just not delete? Nevertheless, it's fucking creepy. Some other strange, short and not so sweet happenings. Let me just rapid fire these. When the screenwriters, the Hayes brothers, worked with Lorraine Warren on the script, their conversations constantly got cut off by strange noises and static on the phone. A lot of times, the line would even go dead. Late one night, when director James Wan worked on the script, his new puppy started staring at an empty corner and gave a vicious growl. Then the dog's head started following something all across the room while Winnell, then his dog's head started following something all across the room while Wan could see nothing. When the real-life parents visited the set in North Carolina, a strange wind whipped through the set, and normally that wouldn't ring alarm bells. But think of wind whipping through an outdoor set. The first thing you'd notice is the trees moving, right? The wind didn't affect the trees at all. It was just a cold breeze that everyone felt, but did not move anything. No thank you. Let's move on to the second movie, the next cursed film. One we all know, and I would assume we all love, Poltergeist. 
Released in 1982, the original Poltergeist, directed by Toby Hooper and produced by Spielberg, was an instant success and is rightfully considered a masterpiece in American horror cinema. The film focuses on the Freelings, a middle-class family whose life is upturned when a number of paranormal and vicious events occur in their California home and their daughter Carol Ann is abducted through her bedroom closet by a group of ghosts who are under the control of a monster demon called the Beast. After learning their house sits atop a Native American burial ground, the Freelings spend their time attempting to retrieve Carol Ann, all while trying to stay sane as they are being absolutely dragged by spirits. Not nice spirits either. There's a lot of reasons people believe this film is allegedly cursed. And I gotta tell you, the evidence is compelling and it's fucking devastating. But the main root of the speculations about this curse is from deaths of multiple cast members that passed away during the filming or soon after. Four cast members died in total and a few were considered highly unusual. In 1982, Dominique Dunn, who played the original older sister, Dana Freeling, separated from her partner, John Sweeney. In November of that year, he showed up at Dunn's house, pleading for her to take him back like all fuckboys do. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed Dunn's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, and left her to die in her Hollywood Homes driveway. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. Six and a half years for choking your girlfriend to death in her driveway. But it just gets better. It, it just gets better. He ended up doing three years and seven months. Three years and seven months. I hope it was a really fucking fun three years and seven months for him. People have gone to jail longer for fucking weed, bro. Unbelievable. What a wild time. The other two cast member deaths, while unfortunate, were not unpredictable or mysterious in any way, in my opinion. The evil preacher Kane from Poltergeist 2 was played by Julian Beck. In 1983, Beck had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, which took his life soon after he finished work on the second installment of the series. The same film was met with further tragedy after Will Sampson, who played Taylor, the Native American shaman, died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant, which, if you don't know, it has a very slim survival rate. In 2009, another cast member, Lou Perryman, played the small role of Pugsley in the original film. He was 67 years old when a recently released ex-convict killed him in his own home with an axe. Absolutely crazy. And finally, Carol Ann Freeling, the young focal point of the series, was played by Heather O'Rourke. She was six years old in 1982 when the first Poltergeist film was released. Sadly, she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. The following year, O'Rourke fell ill again again and her symptoms were chalked up to being the flu. A day later she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest. After being airlifted to a children's hospital in San Diego, O'Rourke died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction. And it was later believed that she had been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. One of the most famous scenes features Jo Beth Williams' character Diane falling into the family's pool. And it's filled with skeletons. And uh, you might not know this, but those skeletons were real. And um, the actors, by the way, didn't know that either. Williams said in a quote, In my innocence and naivete, I assumed that these were not real skeletons. I assumed that they were prop skeletons made out of plastic or rubber. I found out, as did the crew, that they were using real skeletons because it's far too expensive to make fake skeletons out of rubber. God, no way. It's not like you can just buy a fucking hundred pack of skeletons from fucking AliExpress and just make it work, right? I guess that wasn't an option back in the day, but still. After the concern of the use of real skeletons on the set for the first film, Native American actor and Poltergeist 2 The Other Side star Will Sampson performed an exorcism on the set 
set of the second film in 1984. According to Williams, he went to the set late at night by himself to do it, and the next day the cast actually felt very relieved. Richard Lawson, another actor from the film, was aboard the U.S. Air Flight 405 when it crashed into Flushing Bay in March 1992. A total of 27 people out of the 51 on board were killed. Lawson survived, but the event is yet another reason why people claim the movie is cursed. As tragic as a plane crash is, and I can't even imagine the effects on the psyche, it also could have been a lot worse. At least he is still alive to tell the tale. When Poltergeist was rebooted in 2015, some wondered whether the stars would be safe. The movie didn't do so well, and no one has perished yet, anyway, as far as I know, as a result of their involvement. But that being said, director Gil Kennan noted some paranormal phenomena during filming. He said the following, Lights that could turn on anywhere else in the neighborhood would blow out the second you'd try to light them on set. Also, I used a lot of aerial drone photography in the film. The drone pilots were never able to lock in the GPS signal in this field. We would have to move 10 feet away to launch the craft. The house that I rented during filming was straight up legit haunted by a female spirit dressed in black, and I became aware of her within the first few days of staying in the house. And only after I left did I receive a phone call from a previous owner who had moved back in and was terrified by the things going on in the house and wanted to see if I had experienced any of it. So it was incredible real life inspiration for filming that followed me home. I think that's probably the scariest instance for me is if I was doing something really scary or really paranormal and that work followed me home. Changing it up and on to the next film that is not a horror film. Fitzcarraldo is a 1982 West German epic adventure drama filmed, written, and directed by Werner Herzog and stars Klaus Kinski as the title character. Jason Robards was originally cast in the title role, but he became ill with dysentery during filming. After leaving for treatment, he was forbidden by his doctors to return to the set. By that point, 40% of shooting with Robards was complete. For continuity, Herzog had to begin a total reshoot with Kinski, who was obviously his replacement. Mick Jagger, of all people, funnily enough, was cast as Fitzcarraldo's assistant Wilbur and Mario Adorf as the ship's captain, but due to the delays, their shooting schedules expired. Jagger parted to tour with the Rolling Stones, good idea, and that meant Herzog had to drop Jagger's character from the script altogether as he reshot the film from the beginning. The film had a troubled production to say the very least. There is even a documentary titled Burden of Dreams, which chronicled the film's hardships. Not the only documentary that I'll be talking about, by the way. There's there's a lot of these. So if any of this intrigues you, definitely check that out. Herzog forced his crew to manually haul the 320 ton steamship, a fucking steamship, up a steep hill, leading to three injuries. Thank God, not more. Like I would imagine way more than that. Klaus Kinski, as I mentioned earlier, had worked with Herzog on previous films and they clashed violently during productions of those previous films. And the pattern continued. When shooting was nearly complete, the chief of the Machigenga tribe, a tribe that was used extensively as extras for Herzog, asked Herzog if they should kill Kinski for him. Herzog kindly declined. Kinski displayed erratic behavior throughout the production and as I mentioned, fought with Herzog, but he also had major issues with other members of the crew. A scene from Herzog's documentary of the actor titled My Best Friend shows Kinski raging at a production manager over trivial matters like the quality of his food. Herzog notes that the native extras were greatly upset by the actor's behavior. Herzog didn't miss a chance to exploit these tensions. In a scene in which the ship's crew is eating dinner while surrounded by the natives, the clam 
Hammer, the chief incites over Fitzcarraldo was inspired by their hatred of Kinski, art imitating life. The production was also affected by the numerous injuries and deaths of several indigenous extras who were hired to work on the film as laborers. There was also not one, but two small plane crashes that occurred during the film's production, which resulted in a number of injuries, as you can imagine, including one case of paralysis. Another incident during the production included a local Peruvian logger who was bitten by a venomous snake and made the drastic decision to cut off his own foot with a chainsaw to prevent the spread of the venom, thus saving his own life. The movie itself may not have been a horror film, but the production is definitely giving Texas Chainsaw vibes, get it? Uh-huh. Another drink down. If you've been listening and get the heebie-jeebies from Herzog and his treatment of indigenous people, you're not alone. He has been accused of exploiting indigenous people in the making of this film and comparisons have been made ironically between Herzog and Fitzcarraldo himself. Again, art imitating life, just saying, even down to having his crew push the steamship. In 1982, Michael F. Brown, now a professor of anthropology at Williams College, claimed in the magazine The Progressive that while Herzog originally got along with the Aguaruna people, some of whom were hired as extras, like I said, for film and construction, relations deteriorated when Herzog began the construction of a village on Aguaruna land. He allegedly failed to consult the tribal council and attempted to obtain protection from local militia when the tribe turned violent. Aguaruna men burned down the film set in December 1979, shooting an actor through the neck with an arrow in the process. I don't know about this being cursed. I think this is truly a series of unfortunate events, irony, and perhaps a little bit of karma, you know, and art imitating life. Going back to cursed horror films, the 1968 classic psychological horror film, Rosemary's Baby, was based on the 1967 novel of the same name penned by Ira Levin. The film follows a young pregnant wife in Manhattan who comes to suspect her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult and are grooming her in order to use her baby for their rituals. And of course, it was directed by Roman Polanski. I wanna start with a few things about the book and more specifically Ira Levin and his inspiration because we're gonna talk about that at the end. End as well. In 1965, struggling for his next big idea, Levin looked no further than his pregnant wife in their New York apartment. He took every would-be parent's feelings of anxiety and blended that with the religious counterculture that seemed to be taking over in the mid-60s. The Church of Satan was soon to be established in San Francisco, and in April 1966, Time Magazine had just famously asked on its cover, is God dead? Now, if you think that would cause an uprising in 2021, which it would, imagine how that went over in 1966. But Levin went even darker. He thought, what if he took the birth of Jesus and turned the whole tale upside down? What if God was not only dead, but the devil lived? A Jewish atheist, which I can imagine sounds a bit strange, I assume his heritage is Jewish and his beliefs in religion are atheism, Levin nonetheless wrote with mounting reservations. He was sort of taking notes, he said, of his wife's progress alongside Rosemary's, but absolutely refused to let her read the manuscript. Probably good on you, Levin, for that. His fears were both personal and professional, and the book was blasphemy, perhaps, and Levin feared backlash, understandably so. He also feared blacklisting from publishers, and much worse. People were not okay with the religious counterculture. It was not a thing. People were not okay with atheism at the time. It it was not even conceivable. This was a very 
really small amount of people in the religious counterculture compared to the rest of the nation. But again, we're going to get into that a bit later. Rosemary's Baby was published, what, 50 years ago? And it was not met with harsh criticism. It was instead immediately declared perfect, the best horror novel ever crafted and a modern masterpiece. Rave reviews ran in every paper. Truman Capote likened Levin to Henry James. Four million copies flew off store shelves. And Levin was now a superstar. I love the inspiration behind the book and obviously in turn inspiration for the movie. So I desperately wanted to share that before diving into the curse shit. And it'll be relevant. And this curse shit that I speak of is just a firestorm of absolute insanity on the set. According to Mia Farrow, the scenes where Rosemary walks in front of traffic were spontaneous and genuine. Roman Polanski is reported to have told her that nobody will hit a pregnant woman. Go ahead. The scene was successfully shot with Farrow walking into real traffic and Polanski following. He was operating a handheld camera because nobody else was batshit enough to do it. Also, Mia Farrow actually ate raw liver for a scene in the movie, despite being a vegetarian at the time, which is so badass. I don't know if she was forced to, that wouldn't be so badass, but if she was just like, fuck it, I'm gonna go rogue, that'd be crazy, that'd be great. Rosemary and her liver walked so Daenerys and her heart could run. During the filming, I could only find one standout incident, but I don't think it was a curse thing. I think it was more of a life happens and it can be a shitty thing. But many seem to cite it when it comes to speaking of this Rosemary's Baby alleged curse. Lead actress Mia Farrow received divorce papers from Frank Sinatra while filming. That's it. That's the cursed tea. Well, that was the tea during filming. Things progressively went downhill from there. A year later, the success was absolutely unbelievable. Countless glowing reviews came in. Roger Ebert even wrote the director Polanski outdoes Hitchcock. Liz Smith and Cosmopolitan called it sheer perfection. Variety praised just about everyone involved, saying Polanski had triumphed. Star Mia Farrow was outstanding. Composer Christoph Kamita's score was top notch. And producer William Castle had crossed an artistic Rubicon. Truly like the pinnacle of reviews. Like as an artist, you want these reviews. But it was then that the tragedy really began, even when Rosemary's baby was at its peak. The first unlucky soul was composer Christoph Kamita. Details of his death are still unknown, but Polanski told it this way. In autumn of 1968, then 37-year-old Kamita was roughhousing at a party and he fell off a rocky slope and slipped into a four-month coma. The very same affliction Levin's witches used to kill Rosemary's suspicious friend in the book. Kamita never regained consciousness and died in Poland the following year. That's a spooky coincidence. Let me just say that. In April 1969, producer William Castle, sick with worry from the hate mail he had received constantly, because, you know, there's still nuts out there as widely received as this was, because, you know, everyone's interested. Even if they don't talk about it, everyone's got Rosemary's Baby tucked in their nightstand to read. They want to know what all the hype's about. They want to know what the tea is on the dark and the occult. It's natural. It's human. But anyway, William Castle, he was sick with worry from the hate mail, was stricken with severe kidney stones. While delirious in the hospital, he hallucinated scenes from the film and was said to have yelled, Rosemary, for God's sake, drop the knife. Castle recovered just barely and never made a Hollywood hit again. Another producer on the film, Robert Evans, was also receiving his share of bad luck. He was arrested for cocaine possession, falsely tied to a murder, and suffered multiple strokes in his lifetime. 
The film's screenwriter and author of the novel, Ira Levin, also suffered at the hands of the alleged curse, with his wife leaving him shortly after the film's release, as well as receiving countless threats from the Catholic Church about his involvement in the project, among others. Levin didn't believe in witches or curses, he said, over and over again, yet fear grew in him just the same. I think any sane person would feel some sort of questioning there, like, whoa, what's actually happening? On an episode of The Dick Cavett Show in 1980, he appeared appeared with Stephen King and Levin was very quiet, very insecure, kept to himself. And he said the following, I don't recall being scared at all. He said of his childhood horror inspirations and then went on to say, now I'm terrified. By 1992, in a rare interview, Levin confessed to having mixed feelings about Rosemary's baby, including religious guilt. He acknowledged his work had quote, not my quote, this is his quote, played a significant part in all this popularization of the occult and belief in witchcraft and Satanism, unquote. While in the same breath dismissing, quote, all these people who hear backward messages in song lyrics and stuff like that, unquote. Then in a rare admission of regret, he said, I really feel a certain degree of guilt about having fostered that kind of irrationality. Understandably, I can understand having guilt about that, but it's not valid. It, it, it already lived in people. It was a German people. They were gonna find their fix anywhere. It just happened to be in your book. But his family is adamant that the regret wasn't in the book. It was in something else. After decades of endless copycats and spinoffs and made for TV movies that made his book feel like a campy caricature, Levin grew seemingly disdainful of his defining work. He wrote less and less to acclaim, rarely did interviews, and stopped mingling around the New York literary circles. This was literally his dream. This was all he wanted was what he had. And if he ever experienced any bit of happiness during his fame, he didn't say so. Then there's Polanski's fate, a story we all know by heart. Roman Polanski had relocated to California alongside his new girlfriend, actress Sharon Tate, who was fresh off her first movie role as a witch in Eye of the Devil, just before filming began. She even set her heart on the lead role in Rosemary's Baby, but Paramount cast Mia Farrow. Tate instead loitered around the set, just being an uncredited extra in the back of the movie during, I believe, the young people only party scene, if I'm not mistaken. And some had even said that Tate became increasingly obsessed with the occult while she was on set. Many years later, a friend quoted her in print as having said, the devil is beautiful. Most people think he's ugly, but he's not. A very pregnant Sharon Tate was brutally murdered on August 8th by the Manson family, as well as their unborn son, all while Rosemary's baby was still playing in some theaters. Polanski had last saw his wife a month prior and shared in his autobiography a grotesque thought he had at the time. You will never see her again, he wrote. Unable to make sense of such a tragedy and captivated by the stories of the Manson family, the public took to Satan and curses as the only explanation. Some wild conspiracies are out there and they venture as far as saying Polanski sacrificed his wife to Satan for success. Time really hasn't changed anything in the way people consume information and turn it into absolute fucking bullshit, clearly. Others maintain the Manson murders were a mere moment in a grand satanic conspiracy scored by the Beatles. Again, we have learned nothing over the years. We just, again, I talked about this, I don't know when and what episode, but we just need to have a why. And as humans, we just fucking, we will just pick out anything. I'm a very realistic person, but I also feel like I'm very flexible in that. But the whole Beatles bullshit, which I will get into, don't worry in case you're unaware of it. I'm just so tired of this. I'm so tired of these bullshit conspiracies. It's like, 
No. Sometimes people are just fucking batshit crazy and they do batshit crazy things. You know why I think it happens? Because they weren't hugged as a child. You know how you prevent these things as best you can? By being good to your fucking children because those are their formative years and they're like a sponge and I believe all trauma in adulthood comes from childhood problems. Maybe, just maybe treat your children and other people with an iota of fucking respect and they won't run off to join a fucking cult. Now think about it at the time. These were the outcasts of society, right? These were the free. Let me dive deep into my whole thought process on this, just keeping it very plain as possible. Humans have this undying need to be a part of a group, whether we identify with a fucking cult or a sports team. We look for corners of people that are similar to us in some way. I don't know if that makes sense, but when you don't feel accepted or you feel other in your group, you're going to find a new group. I don't know if this makes any sense and I am drunk, but someone who is in their family and let's say at the time, when was this, the 60s or the 70s, their family is deeply religious and they discover that, you know, I love men and I'm a man and I wanna be open and free about this. And their family fucking rejects him and treats him like an other. He's gonna go find a new group to accept him. And that group is filled with the same people who have felt rejected and are angry and hurt and they are gonna foster all of that hatred and pain and somebody who is beyond help is going to manipulate them hmm, like a Manson or could possibly manipulate them. This isn't the case every time, but I believe people in cults are vulnerable people, whether for whatever reason, usually a rough family life or because they don't feel understood or they, they don't find their calling. I'm not just labeling it as the LGBTQIA plus community. That is not my intention at all. I'm saying anyone who feels other wants to find where they fit in. And to put it simply, just be fucking nice to people and the the world will be a better place. I'm saying that to myself too, because I'm not a very nice person most of the time. I really just don't like people. I don't, I don't have a lot of hope because people come up with bat shit like this to explain something that is really rather simple. Anyways, let's get on to the Beatles conspiracy. Follow me down this rabbit hole because it is really nutty and there are some fucking weird coincidences. Whether you believe in coincidences or not, they're spooky. The White Album by the Beatles was written largely at an Indian meditation that Mia Farrow was also in attendance for. The Beatles even have a song on the White Album titled Dear Prudence, which was written by John about Mia Farrow's sister Prudence. The song titled Helter Skelter, misspelled by the way, <laughs> was scrawled in blood at the crime scene where Sharon Tate was brutally murdered. And a dozen years later, Lennon was assassinated across the street from the Dakota, the gabled landmark where Rosemary's Baby was filmed. So all of that has some strange coincidences, but let me wrap that up at the end of this. Levin did pass away in 2007 after a poorly rated sequel, Son of Rosemary, but it was still received. Nonetheless, it became a bestseller and allowed him to live out his last days financially comfortable. The Beatles and the Manson connection is wild, but I don't think it's a curse. I think, as I said before, Hollywood and famous or elite circles are really small. And when you shrink that circle down to those who were into the occult and counter-religious culture, the circle gets extremely small. Everyone was in some way, shape or form affected by the Beatles music, everyone, even if they hated it. I'm not the biggest Beatles fan, sorry, I said it. The Manson family was one of many, many people who felt the music on a deeper level, especially when you add a shit ton of drugs to the mix like the Manson family did. The murder of John Lennon was a tragic fate, but I don't believe it was a curse. 
I don't think any of it was. I think the entire idea of the Rosemary's Baby's curse is a mix of strange coincidence, a careful what you wish for situation because the grass isn't always greener, and a shit ton of drugs and exploration of thought to a dangerous degree on top of those things. This next film, I don't even know how to explain how long it took me to gather notes for this. The things that have happened on set were fucking endless, endless and bad shit. Take a shot every time I say bat shit, but drink responsibly. Probably not responsible. Absolute fucking insanity on this set. The film is Apocalypse Now, and it's a 1979 American epic psychological war film directed and produced by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest, Lawrence Fishburne, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Hopper. The movie is all about a U.S. Army officer serving in Vietnam and tasked with assassinating a renegade special forces colonel who sees himself as a god. It's a skim milk version there. It's just absolute madness. The movie, the production, all of it. Great movie, though. To put it gingerly, this film went off the fucking rails, and I, I, I'm having trouble deciding where to begin with my notes here. Let's start with the location. Simple. As you can see when watching the film, they filmed this in a fucking jungle, and this movie had a massive budget, by the way. 31.5 million is the estimate, and they paid Marlon Brando 3.5 million dollars, in the late 70s, mind you, a lot of money, to play the lead role Colonel Walter Kurtz, which was one month of work. Brando eventually turned up late to work and about 88 pounds overweight. He also allegedly smelled from lack of bathing, was perpetually drunk and high on cocaine, and refused to be on set at the same time as Dennis Hopper because he didn't like him. Brando's character Kurtz had always been written as very tall and thin, so when he showed up a little bit heavier, some panic ensued and Coppola decided to film the 5'7 Brando as if he was massively built, like a six foot five brute to explain his size and kept the camera away from his newly made belly. Nothing wrong with a belly, it just wasn't the character he had envisioned. I don't think Coppola will agree with me. I don't think he appreciated this, but you know, he made it work. Brando also admitted he hadn't read the script or Heart of Darkness, fantastic book, one of my favorites, by the way, and was a massive inspiration for this film, huge. And I imagine that was one of his assignments from Coppola. Like, hey man, you need to read this book. You could have at least read the abridged version. That would have gave you some, you know, ideas. He even said he didn't like the name Kurtz. Like if you read Heart of Darkness, you, you, you would understand, but I digress. After several days, Brando got around to reading Coppola's script eventually and uh, refused to do it. He said, no, no, thank you. After several days of arguments over single lines of dialogue, Coppola said fine and agreed to an ad lib style script with Brando filmed mostly in shadows, very covert. Marlon Brando was also described as quote, like a kid, very irresponsible, unquote, by Coppola as well. And this was pushed to new heights, understandably because the script was being heavily rewritten day by day during the production. Not exactly the ideal situation situation for actors or production. And this is just the fucking beginning, guys. This is nothing. Marlon Brando bothered and angered Coppola so fucking much that Coppola turned over the filming of Brando's scenes to assistant director Jerry Ziesmer. That's how bad it was. And Coppola is a pretty uh, hands-on guy, very, very serious about his craft. Before Brando was cast, Coppola had to recast his lead Harvey Keitel after just a few weeks of filming with Martin Sheen, essentially forcing him to start all over, by the way. And speaking of Martin Sheen, his um, troubles, I guess you could say to put it lightly, were extensive on set. Martin 
Florentine's son, Emilio Estevez, visited the set when he was around 13 and quickly became friends with Lawrence Fishburne. Fun fact, Lawrence was 14 at the time of filming and he lied about his age to get the role and he looked a lot older, so he got away with it. And the two became close friends and one day they were out on a boat and the boat got stuck. Emilio got out of the boat to clear the area and he began to sink into the mud. Essentially, this was quicksand and Emilio was pulled under. Lawrence quickly moved and pulled him back on board, saving his life. We're not even close to done. Next up is the weather. A typhoon blasted through the area where filming was taking place, destroying several expensive sets. And it also forced the cast and crew to fly back to the United States, very expensive. And Martin Sheen understandably was highly reluctant to return. According to a friend, when Marty came home after the typhoon, he was real scared. He said, I don't know if I'm gonna live through this. Those fuckers are crazy but he was convinced to return and upon doing so promptly had a heart attack and a nervous breakdown. Due to the declining health of Sheen, he obviously couldn't film. So some scenes of Willard's back are shot with doubles. Those doubles included Martin Sheen's brother, Joe Estevez, who was flown out specifically for this. Francis Ford Coppola and Sheen were so worried that the backing would be withdrawn by the studio and distributors if news of Sheen's heart attack leaked that they both kept it quiet. The official shoot schedule said Sheen was hospitalized due to heat exhaustion. That's always the excuse, dehydration and heat exhaustion. Me too, I'm always fucking exhausted and dehydrated. I say as I take another sip of my alcoholic beverage filled with eggnog. Whew, it's gonna be a long night. Okay, my belly is a rumbling. I haven't had much of this and I already feel like I have a fever and my stomach's rumbling and like this is why I don't go places even as like a teenager. I was not the party girl. I was not going out. I didn't want to be that embarrassing girl because you know how there's always like, I'm drunk after one drink like that would literally be me and like not even being ironic or faking it. So that would make it much worse. So I'm having a hard time here. I'm just looking at my shaker full of drink and I'm like, that's gonna sit in the fridge for a while. Back to Apocalypse Now. An early scene where Captain Willard is alone in his hotel room was completely unscripted. Martin Sheen told camera crew to just let the cameras roll. Sheen was really drunk. He punched the mirror, which was real glass, cutting his thumb. The originator of the Leo breaking the glass scene in Django. We love that, an inspiration. Sheen also began sobbing and tried to attack director Francis Ford Coppola while shooting the scene. The crew was so disturbed that they wanted to stop shooting entirely, but Sheen was like, no, no, keep the cameras going. At the time he was fighting a drinking problem and mental health issues and it it was bad. He hit the mirror because he was just so caught up in his own inner demons and his struggles. This wasn't revealed till much later in a conversation with Coppola and Sheen and has been shown in the Redux version because this movie has been redone like 1500 times. Some members of the cast believe Coppola was all too willing to exploit Sheen's drinking problem. Sound familiar, Fitzcarraldo? For one scene, I'm not sure if it was this um, Captain Willard in the hotel room scene in particular, but it was a scene nonetheless. Sheen was kept drunk for two days while the cameras rolled with Coppola subjecting him to what can only be described as psychological abuse. One cast member said, quote, Francis had this way of directing. He would tell Martin, you're evil. I want all the evil, the violence, the hatred in you to come out. Coppola did a dangerous and terrible thing. He assumed the role of a psychiatrist and did a kind of brainwashing on a man who was much too sensitive. He put Martin in a place and didn't bring him back. Very, very dangerous. You can't bring someone there and not bring them back. And the same goes for yourself. A lot of times with artists and people who write or, you know, put themselves in this state of mind where they want to be to create a certain mood or a certain you know, painting, uh, script, uh, book, whatever, scene, you bring yourself to a really bad place or, you know, a really sad place. There, You bring yourself to these different places. It's almost like acting. Sorry, again, I know I'm not articulate, but I remember, God, this was like two years ago now. 
when I was first started writing a novel I'm going to be working on for the rest of my fucking life. Um, <laughs> it was a really dark scene and I was inspired by a very, very dark time in my life. And I just brought myself back there and I didn't and still don't quite know how to bring myself out of that place. And it's fucking hard. So I can't even imagine when you are in the moment like that, everything surrounding you, you're drinking, you have a drug problem, you have, a, you know, your nerves are getting the best of you. You are in that role. And mind you, secluded from everyone else in the world that maybe humbles you or brings you back to earth. And on top of that, you have your director, someone you rely on, someone of importance and prominence just dragging you to that place. That is, that's, I, I can't even imagine. Clearly Coppola was no angel himself and him and many members of the cast and crew were also drunk or on drugs while shooting. Drugs were always plentiful on set. Dennis Hopper had a regimen that consisted of a case of beer, a half gallon of liquor, and three ounces of cocaine. Yes, three. How? I, I don't know. Sam Bottoms, who played Lance B. Johnson, was on speed, LSD, and marijuana during the shooting of his scenes for the movie. Parties basically raged long into the night when cameras weren't rolling, and it started to become obvious that the shoot would take a little longer than expected. And that is when the real trouble started. Oh, oh yes. What you just heard was not the real trouble. Those were baby things. Obviously, this is a war movie and they needed war military equipment. I don't know what you call it. And the Pentagon refused to offer theirs. So Coppola turned to the Philippines where he was shooting and asked the president, Ferdinand Marcos, to supply helicopters and other military equipment. Marcos took back the equipment when it was needed for actual military operations. Understandable, of course, but this caused a lot more delays in filming. As you can imagine, tropical diseases also ran rampant on set and could sideline cast and crew members for weeks, adding to all the stress for Coppola was the fact that production was absorbing virtually every dollar he had. Why his dollars, you ask? Well, let me explain. The initial budget was obliterated less than three months into the shoot, which was also weeks behind schedule at this point. Cute. That's cute. We're, <laughs> it won't be cute by the end of this. Coppola remedied the situation by signing over his house and winery to the bank, pumping a whopping 30 million. That's over 120 million in today's money of his own personal funds into the production. After Sheen's heart attack, Coppola also blamed himself having a nervous breakdown of his own and also had an epileptic seizure. Coppola also threatened suicide several times during the making of this film and lost 100 pounds in the process. Could you imagine if this movie was shit and it was panned and it didn't do well? I, I, I just, thank God it's a, like, it's one of the greatest movies of all times, but we'll get to that as well. Shooting originally scheduled for six weeks, remember, just cute, a little behind schedule. Mm-mm took 16 months. Rumors of Apocalypse Now had spiraled into the press and became kind of a well-known joke. And a lot of major US papers mocking the film and asking, would it ever finish filming? Spoiler, yes. Aside from horrendous circumstances that caused unbelievable delays, there were some insane and disturbing details from the set. Firstly, the water buffalo slaughter we saw in the film. Yeah, that was real. The scene was inspired by a ritual performed by a local tribe, which Francis Ford Coppola had witnessed along with his wife and film crew. Although it was an American production subject to American animal cruelty laws, scenes filmed in the Philippines were not policed nor monitored. The American Humane Association gave the film an unacceptable rating. Understandably so. No fucking need for that. I understand if it's your ritual and it's a part of your culture. I mean, I can't. What am I supposed to say to that? But if you're just doing it for a movie, there's something weird about that to me. Don't fucking kill an animal for entertainment. Not a fan of that. According to a co-producer, the production designer wanted to make a shot a little more authentic 
authentic than was ethically possible. While the co-producer was chewing out the production designer over a rat infestation on set, which the designer said was intentional, it gives it a real atmosphere. A nearby prop man blurted out, wait till he hears about the dead bodies. Oh yeah, we have dead bodies. What don't we have in this production? An infuriated Gray Fredrickson, who was the co-producer, was led to a pile of actual fucking cadavers that the production designer intended to use in the scene. He'd secured them from a local who was in the business of supplying cadavers to medical schools and who, as it turned out, was a grave robber. Duh. The police ended up showing up and took everyone's passports. The co-producer Fredrickson said they didn't know we hadn't killed these people because the bodies were unidentified. I was pretty damn worried for a few days, but they got to the truth and put the guy in jail. Later, soldiers came to take the bodies away, but since nobody was paying for a burial, they promised to simply dump them somewhere. Shooting this film was, <laughs> I know, it just, it just keeps getting worse. Shooting was just the beginning of this alleged curse. Just the fucking beginning. For starters, the Philippines had no professional film laboratories at the time, meaning the raw camera negatives had to be shipped to the US to be processed. Thus, the entire movie was shot blind. Francis Ford Coppola never saw a shot of film until he returned to California. It took Francis Ford Coppola nearly three years to edit the footage. While working on his final edit, it became apparent to him that Martin Sheen would be needed to tape several additional narrative voiceovers. Coppola soon discovered that Sheen was a busy guy and uh, was unable to perform these voiceovers. So he called in Sheen's brother, Joe Estevez, whose voice sounded nearly identical to perform the new narrative tracks. Estevez, who was the double stand-in when, you know, Martin Sheen was hurt. This is the same brother that was the stand-in when Martin Sheen was recovering. Joe Estevez was not credited for his work as a stand-in nor for his voiceover work. Editing the helicopter napalm attack took one year to complete. 365 days, 12 months, one year. Approximately 10% of the entire film's footage, which is 130,000 feet, was from that sequence. The total length of the film printed for the movie was approximately 1,250,000 feet. That's about 230 hours of footage. Insane. People would actually probably be down to watch that. Isn't that insane? The work print was reportedly over five hours, but eventually edited back to three hours for the Cannes Film Festival premiere and further cut down to 147 minutes for the 1979 theatrical version. Again, this movie's been done a million times over. The run times are different depending on which one you watch. Due to all of the curses and drama, a lot of mistakes were made for this film. It actually holds a record for moviemistakes.com as the film with the most errors. And if you're curious, it's a total of 558 and they are fucking wild errors, man. There are geographical errors, continuity errors, crew or equipment being <laughs> visible in shots. I think in the reflection of uh, one of the guy's sunglasses in a scene, you could see a fucking boom mic, bro. Gotta be careful of the reflection in your glasses, guys. But there's also character errors, audio errors, all the fucking errors. In the end, if you didn't already know, despite the mountain of bad press and being the butt of every joke, Apocalypse Now became one of the greatest movies of all times. Coppola's film would go on to gross over 78 million, over 260 million today, and earn itself eight Oscar nominations. It would go on to win Best Cinematography for Vittorio Storaro and Best Sound, Walter Murch. Apocalypse Now is regarded as a defining masterpiece in the golden 70s era of filmmaking. And if you want to dive deeper into this fucking messy curse behind the scenes, you can check out Eleanor Coppola's Heart of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse. I haven't watched it yet, but I can imagine it's extremely interesting.
We cannot talk about cursed films without talking about 1994's The Crow, which was also featured in the docuseries that I watched. The Crow began filming in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1993. Cursed Films revealed that before production even got underway, a mysterious caller left a voicemail message warning the crew not to shoot the movie because bad things would happen. This happened before cameras even started rolling. Creepy as fuck. If you don't know about The Crow, let me give you the skim milk. The night before his wedding, musician Eric Draven, who's played by Brandon Lee, and his fiance are brutally murdered by members of a violent inner city gang. On the anniversary of their death, Eric rises from the grave and assumes the gothic mantle of The Crow, a supernatural avenger who could probably kick Iron Man's dead ass. Sorry, I had to ruin the serious tone, didn't I? Anyway. Tracking down the thugs responsible for the crimes and mercilessly murdering them, Eric eventually confronts head gangster Top Dollar to complete his macabre mission. To get right into the juice, two onset electricians were involved in an accident in which their truck hit a live wire. One of the men experienced second and third degree burns, but both lost their ears. Very brutal. Disaster also struck the entire production when a hurricane destroyed the movie set. That's when people started rumbling about the curse of the crow. But the nucleus of this curse conspiracy, the star of the crow, Brandon Lee, was the son of martial arts legend, Bruce Lee. The elderly died during the production of his final film. Some fans speculate that the Chinese mafia had placed a hit on the actor for betraying martial arts secrets. Others suspected that he had been struck by an insidious death blow at an earlier time. If you're not aware of the death blow, I don't know too much about it, but it's like when they hit you and you don't die right away, it like takes weeks, months, years to kill you. I don't know the exact details, please don't come for me, but it's something along those lines. The most popular theory about the dragon, aka Bruce Lee's death, is that he was the victim of a Lee family curse. His older brother died and Lee's parents believed there was a demon targeting the males in the Lee family. Like his father, Brandon Lee died before he finished filming The Crow. In a fluke accident, the performer was shot while completing an action sequence as described in Curse Films. The crew used what are called dummy rounds for the scene, but there was something in the barrel of the gun that acted as a lethal projectile killing Lee. Pretty in-depth analysis that, I mean, if you want to see it, you can watch the docuseries. It's, it's pretty amazing, especially this episode. And I wouldn't even know where to begin the in-depth analysis of it. I just gave you the basic conclusion. In order to complete the final photography for The Crow, the man who had been working as Lee's stunt double wore a mask in his image. And it was pretty freaky. Everyone on set, you know, obviously they were dumbfounded and then they saw him and he looked exactly like Brandon Lee. And that could have been severely troubling. Very tragic fate. And finally, to complete the list, we have a film that is so cursed, it never even got made. Atuk. The Incomparable Atuk is a satirical novel by Canadian author Mordecai Richler. It was first published in 1963, and the story is about an Inuit poet from Baffin Island who gets sent to Toronto. Typical fish out of water story, right? But in the unmade movie version, he lives in Alaska and ends up in New York City. Atuk was to be the son of an Inuit woman and a missionary who dreams of seeing the world outside the Inuit territory in Alaska. He sees his chance when a beautiful documentarian named Michelle Rose and her crew arrive to film. Atuk actually stows away in Michelle's plane when her crew takes off from another village. After the crew lands in Canada, Michelle has no choice but to take Atuk with her past the border and into America. The two end up at Michelle's destination, New York City. Meanwhile, powerful real estate mogul Alexander McEwen 
Biden is planning to erect a massive metropolis on top of Alaska's wilderness called the Emerald. McEwen is clashing with environmentalists over the project because they claim the city will poison the ecosystem there. Most likely, guys. The film adaptation was requested by Norman Jewison in the early 1970s. Todd Carroll wrote the adaptation and Jewison planned to film it in Canada. John Belushi was the first actor to be attached to the film. He was offered the lead role in 1982 and showed a lot of interest in the script. But a few months later, on March 5th, Belushi was tragically found dead in his hotel room. He was only 33 years old. The cause of death was determined to be drug-related, most likely a speedball. His death was investigated by a forensic pathologist, and the findings were disputed. Two months later, Catherine Evelyn Smith admitted she had been with Belushi on the night of his death and had given him the fatal dosage. The case was reopened, and she was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. In 1986, after losing their lead, the script went back on the market, and this time Sam Kinison got involved. He would play the lead role of a took. In 1988, production began and managed eight days of filming before Kinison halted the production. He didn't like the way it turned out and began to rewrite the script. Kinison said that he was given creative control. Apparently, he became difficult when the studio got involved and a lawsuit began. The movie was put on hold again until 1992 when production began to set up again. Unfortunately, during these negotiations, Kinnison died at only 38. His vehicle was struck head-on in California by a pickup truck driven by a 17-year-old who was drunk. Kinnison was alive after the crash, and his best friend Carl LeBove had been driving behind him at the time of the accident. Kinnison's brother was also there, and none of them could see any visible injuries. But Kinnison began to talk to himself, repeating, I don't want to die. It then appeared as if he was talking to someone who wasn't there. He mumbled, but why? Okay, okay. And then he lost consciousness. He could not be resuscitated, and he died at the scene from internal injuries. His wife, who was also in the car, survived with a mild concussion. Unfortunately, this is not the end of the tragedy that surrounded Atuk. The persistent production team refused to give up, and they really believed the script was something special. And so in 1994, they approached John Candy and offered him the role. Candy was thrilled and began to study the script. He was super excited about it. In March of that year, he also died. Candy was working in Mexico, and at some point in the night of March 4th, he died of a heart attack at only 43 years old. Candy had reportedly asked his close friend, Michael O'Donohue, to also read the script and perhaps join the cast. In November of that same year, Michael O'Donohue also passed away. He had a history of chronic migraines and died from a cerebral hemorrhage at 54 years old. A few years later, in 1997, the film surfaced again. A took was offered to Chris Farley. Farley was aware that his idol Belushi was once offered the part, and so he was intrigued. This seemed to be the role of his dreams. He expressed interest, but much like his idol, Farley also died young, at the same age of 33. A few months after reading the script, on December 18th, Farley was found dead in his apartment. He died of a drug overdose, a speedball, just like Belushi. In some sort of fucked up inception way farley much like candy also introduced his friend phil hartman to the script five months after the tragic death of farley hartman's wife murdered phil in cold blood his wife bryn hartman got into the heated argument with phil after he threatened to leave her if she started using drugs again at 3 a.m bryn entered the bedroom and shot phil twice in the head and once on his side she drove to a friend's house and confessed to the murder. The friend didn't believe her, so the two of them drove back to the house. The friend saw the body and called the police. As soon as the police arrived and escorted the children out of the home, Bryn locked herself in the bedroom and shot herself, committing suicide. And so Atuk sits on a shelf and will most likely stay there. I'd be terrified. Who would want to take that script? Nobody. 
we made it and I'm fucking spinning. I'm trying to keep it together. I realized about like halfway through, I'm like, I am so drunk that I'm focused on not seeming drunk. And so I probably, I don't know what's happening. Like I said, I'm a fit girl, but I'm a fucking lightweight. So this was no easy feat. I'm getting like meat sweats <laughs> as I'm fucking recording. But thank you so, so much for listening with me and possibly having a drink with me. Drinking responsibly, of course. And yeah, I want to spotlight uh, samhsa.gov. I know we just finished talking about really tragic deaths surrounding drugs. And we all know someone who has suffered at the hands of addiction. On this website, you can find treatment for even more than that. Whether it's tobacco, alcohol, or drugs, resources are available, especially if you need to find treatment near you. They also have a national hotline you can call, as well as a suicide prevention line. I know a lot of my listeners are outside the U.S. If that is the case, you can visit atforum.com. That's a website that allows you to connect with international organizations that can help you find resources and treatment. Thank you again for hanging out with me. Stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong, and drink responsibly. Thank you.